Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Finding our way through this uh, biblical narrative, and uh, we've been entering into this process of uh, biblical theology and, you know, looking for things that tie this narrative into one comprehensive whole, and, uh, and uh, I don't know about you, but this follow-up for me, we, we uh, did a series on relationships just before we uh, got into this, and uh, in that story on relationships, we were following Joseph's story. And then we jumped into this narrative, and I've been having a little bit of a problem keeping up, of which, you know, what was last series and what's this series? Anybody else having that problem? Okay, just me. Good. I assume that's because uh, you've all taken such copious notes that you know exactly what's going on. Or we never know. So as we think about it, we're talking about the story of promise, and we've talked about design features that hold the story together. And so just to kind of refresh your thoughts, he will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on him. What does that mean? What happens to you? How would you go about fixing your mind on him? If I were to ask you, what is the narrative? What is the story of the Bible? What would you say? And it matters that we would have some sense of what the Bible is trying to say to us. And the second question we've been asking is, and then what does that have to do with you today? What is happening today that that narrative has some impact on? And so we've talked about these cohesive things, and we've talked about design features that occur over and over, and how they sort of weave their way through the story to hold the narrative together, and how it really is one comprehensive story. And we even started at the end of the story. We talked about this is a story of redemption, and we, we began in Revelation 21 with John looking into eternity and telling us that ultimately there's a new heaven and a new earth, and, and God is making all things new. And so we know that this story, our story is on its way to redemption. And that's tough in this culture, because in this culture, the story is everything's falling apart. I don't know if you've heard, everything's falling apart. Everything is falling apart. Everything is falling apart. Politics are falling apart. The earth is falling apart. Everything is falling apart. And there's no doubt that there's truth in that, but there's also truth in this. He will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on him. What are you focused on? The falling apart are the redemptive truth that he will make all things new. I don't know how. Maybe it has to get worse before it gets better. I don't know. But I do know that the narrative says, the biblical story is, God is in the business of redeeming. And not even just redeeming the world. He's redeeming your story. He's redeeming my story. There's, a, there's always a new plan A. There's always hope. There's always redemptive power. He doesn't waste things that happen in our lives and so it's a story of redemption but it's a story of creativity and then we talked last week it's a story of promise I mean a story of purpose you and I have a purpose in this for whatever reason God chooses covenant and he speaks to Abraham and he says listen walk before me and be my people I'll be your God and and you know through you the whole world will be blessed and you and I are here to receive the love of God and pass it on we have a purpose we have a purpose in our home we have a purpose in our family we have a purpose in our community. It is though God himself were making his appeal through us. What narrative do you believe? You wake up in the morning and go, I just got to get through this day. I just got to survive. Or do you say, I'm an ambassador of God. 
I'm, I, it is though God himself are making his appeal through me. And he might not be thrilled with how I've represented him today. <laughs> I might need to clean up a little bit, you know. Today we're thinking about this story of promise. It's a story of promise. And the promise is, I will deliver you. And it's a big deal. This is a big, big deal. I, I love how the, 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 the 20th, or late 19th century, early 20th century writers wanted us to get into the narrative. And I, I, I love this phrase. You know, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born in his spirit. Lost in his love. Don't you love that? I mean, that's a beautiful. And then, do you know the chorus? This is my story. This is my song. (laughs) Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. And I think those hymn writers were dying for us to get ourselves attached to the story. There's some some summation things going on. and, And let's talk about a couple of them as we work our biblical theology this morning. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. The thief comes only to steal and kill (laughs) and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Which narrative do you buy into? The fact is, you and I know this. The thief does come to steal and kill. We do know that. Something is going on. Sometimes that's emotional to us. There's a default setting in us that's disappointed all the time. I don't understand it. Do you understand it? I don't get it. It's like we wake up every morning thinking everything's going to be okay. You know? And then we're disappointed when it's not. Like, isn't this weird? Yesterday, the drivers in Los Angeles were not very good drivers. But today, we think they're going to do better. And evidently, we believe that overnight something happened to everyone because we are very disappointed when it doesn't happen. Amen? I mean, we're very angry. I can't believe these people. They were here yesterday. (laughs) Uh, The the world is broken. The systems are broken. It's not, I'll tell you a sad story. I got up this morning and went to Burger King. That's not the sad part of the story. (laughs) It's actually a good part of the story. (laughs) Because, you know, on the Sabbath, you don't have to fast. So I got up there today and I said, you know, I need a glass of iced tea. And the fellow said, we didn't make iced tea this morning. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and the fact that you would be disappointed by this, that you'd be surprised that it didn't work out the way you had hoped. Because that's how it worked. But you are. You're like, I, I figured Burger King was inerrant. But isn't that, we live in this broken world, and yet we're surprised by the things that don't go well. We're constantly disappointed. And there's a part of us that somewhere in there, we're invited to shift our focus onto something else. To shift our focus. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I've come that you might have life. Summation. It's a summation of the narrative of Scripture. It really holds it together well. Here's another summation. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, if you think about this prayer, this prayer starts in origins. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I don't know if you've read Genesis 1. And the Spirit of God hovered over the void. Doesn't that sound familiar? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Let there be light. Let it be done on earth as it is in 
heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Take care of our needs. Do you follow the biblical narrative? It begins in creation, and then he forms a relationship with human beings to care for their needs, to take care of them, and forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Let us be recipients of your grace, of your forgiveness, of your redemption, of your love. Love us like that. Love us like that. When we're a mess, love us like that. Love us like that. And then help us to love others like that. To not see in them the brokenness, but to see in them the redemptive power. To keep loving and keep forgiving. You keep forgiving us, and we keep forgiving. And do not lead us into temptation. We need help. (laughs) And deliver us from evil. I mean, this is the biblical narrative. Is it not? Does, does these words not go, hey, I just prayed the whole of Scripture. And then, you know, that's where Jesus left the prayer. Lead us not into notice, but deliver us from the evil one. That's where the prayer ends in the Sermon on the Mount. But the church saw fit to add a phrase or two. For yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, why did the church add that? Because after Jesus taught the prayer, there's some more Bible happening, isn't there? And the last thing that happens is we see John staring off into eternity saying, listen, God's going to make everything do. He's going to make everything new. For yours is the kingdom and the power forever and ever. Amen. And so when you pray that prayer, you're actually praying the biblical narrative. I don't know if you ever thought about it. It's a summation story. That biblical narrative. I think that's why sometimes when you bow your head and you go, he will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on him. Let me fix my mind. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. We can pray the narrative. We can focus. And so when you and I begin to think about this, you got to get this in your head. This is a story of promise, and the promise is a promise of deliverance. I will deliver you. I will deliver you. I will deliver you. I will deliver you. I have come... To preach the good news, to, to proclaim you know, freedom for the captives, to bind up the brokenhearted, to, to release from darkness those who are trapped. That's, that's not just Isaiah's words in Isaiah 61. That is the, that's the truth of the scripture. And it begins around two great narratives. We're doing biblical theology now. Everybody still with me? We're going to descend in a moment into a narrative. It begins in these two great stories, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. In fact, the entire narrative hangs on these two events. And in the Old Testament, that narrative moment is the story of the Exodus, the story of the great deliverance. It will become this moment, this this transfixing moment that everyone will look at and focus on, not just throughout the life of Israel, but for, for eternity. It's going to keep going and going and going. And it is mirrored in the New Testament by another event of deliverance, and that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These two great stories of deliverance are to convince you and to convince me that this is a promise of deliverance. And I don't know about you, but this is more meaningful to me when I personalize the story. This is my story. This is my song. And so if I were to, before I dive into the narrative, say to you, where is it in your story, in your life, that you would pray, God, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me. There may be right now circumstances that you're going through. There may be very real, physical, literal circumstances that you want to say out loud, God, deliver me. I don't know. I don't feel comfortable praying all those psalms prayers, smite them, make my enemies like the dust, break their teeth. Have you read those? I mean, let me say that differently. I do feel like praying it. I just don't believe it's politically correct. Amen? 
I mean, you don't want your children walking in while you're praying that prayer. That's just not, you know. And then bless them too. But there is a part of us that understands that there are broken things in the world and there are broken people and there's broken circumstances and there's broken systems. And not everything works the way it should. And maybe this morning, you know, you would say, you know, what I need deliverance from is a, is a mess. It's a mess that's bigger than me. I've become embroiled in things that I don't know how to figure out. I've become embroiled in things that I'm disappointed in people. They've let me down. They've betrayed me. They've lied. They've cheated. They've, uh, it's just I'm stuck. Deliver me. Deliver me. Deliver me. Maybe it's financial or job-related or, or, or feeling trapped. Maybe it has to do with habits. Maybe it has to do with chronic addiction. Maybe it has to do with, you know, uh, maybe it has to do with the, the simple reality that your emotional world is not a safe place. It happens to us, doesn't it? <laughs> Where things going on in here, you know, I, I don't know about you, but isn't that why we entertain ourselves so much? Because being alone and quiet is sometimes not our best. I'm not my best friend when I'm alone. Are you, are you a good friend to yourself when you're alone? Yes. Good. Half the people are, half the people aren't. Okay. The other half the people don't know what I'm talking about. So I, I just, re, you know, maybe that's the place where you say, God, deliver me from emotions. Because sometimes I feel so sad I don't know what to do. Sometimes I'm anxious at a level I don't know how to function. Sometimes I'm depressed. Sometimes I feel hopeless. I don't know how that fits into this Christian biblical narrative. I don't feel delivered. Well, I don't know if you know, but that's what the narrative's about. It's about a whole bunch of people who don't feel delivered. And God consistently saying, I will deliver you. I haven't forgotten you. I, you're not lost. It's okay. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't quit. Maybe it has to do with the thoughts that run in your brain. I don't know about you, but... My thoughts tend to, don't you like this? He will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on him. That's not where my mind fixes. Where does your mind fix? My mind fixates on a lot of other things. I mean, it fixates. It, it, it latches on to things. Ugh. You know, well, ugh. Ugh. Did you wish your brain, like, automatically attached to good thoughts? Did it just automatically, you know, like, oh, here's a warm thought. Wouldn't that be so wonderful if you just found yourself smiling for no reason? What's going on with you? I'm just having happy thoughts. <laughs> My mind has gotten fixated on happy and I can't get off. <laughs> uh, that doesn't really happen, does it? That's not what naturally happens to us. And so the narrative is there to pull us into space, to fix our minds on something that's bigger than just spiritual thoughts. It's a real story. We left... The children of Israel, and, and we had Abraham, and we were telling Abraham's story, and, and he had been redeemed, and Isaac had come along, and we talked last week about this covenant relationship. And, of course, Isaac gives, uh, Abraham gives birth to Isaac, and Isaac gives birth to Jacob, and Jacob gives birth to 12 sons. And I know we would like to say they become the 12 tribes of Israel, but they don't. They become 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. But Joseph is given a double portion and so Ephraim and Manasseh become the last two to fill out the tribes. So, and just to confuse you further, because some of you may say, oh, no, I know there's a tribe of Joseph. Yes, Ephraim is often referred to as the tribe of Joseph, but Joseph is given two. His two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are actually become the leaders of the tribes of Israel. The Levites are not given an inheritance because they're the priestly clan. They're given instead cities throughout the land. So if you're trying to track all of that, I know it's very important to all of you of biblical history. 
I saw all of you writing that down while I was saying it. And so we find Joseph then is sold into slavery into Egypt, and we really find then Jacob and all the other brothers come to Egypt to escape the famine, and they settle there. And they are favored by Pharaoh, and they are in the land for 400 years. And while they are there, something begins to happen. And what begins to happen is they begin to transform from a family into a nation. In fact, they began to grow so rapidly inside the context of Egypt that the, that the pharaohs become very concerned. The Egyptians become very concerned about this growing group of people who are highly co- cohesive. I don't know if you know this, but like in the church, it's really weird to get sideways with people because everybody's related somehow. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, you just don't know what the network looks like till something blows up. And then you're like, oh, you're friends with them? Oh, you're, oh, oh, your kids are married. Oh, <laughs> yikes. So that's what's going on in Egypt. They have this cohesive connection and the pharaohs are terrified. And so, so first Pharaoh says, this is what we're going to do. And now that it's just gotten out of going, we're going to subject the Israelites to, to slavery at a level that it will diminish them among us. And so they do. They, they subject them to this very difficult life of slavery, and they thrive. It doesn't solve the problem at all. And so Pharaoh says, okay, new plan. This is what we're going to do. We're going to have all the male children killed at birth. We'll take care of this. But even his own people will not follow through with this threat. And so then he says, okay, here's what we're going to do now. Every male child that's two years old is going to be thrown into the Nile River. Now, you know, for us, we're like, oh, that's, but, you know, what he's saying is, listen, we're not going to kill them because you guys are too, your sensibilities are too much. That's too much. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to give them to the God of the Nile, and he can do whatever he wants to with them. Better, huh? (laughs) And you thought politics was new. (laughs) And so, technically, then, a child is born whose name is Moses. And at the age of two years old, his mother and father place him in a basket and technically follow the rules. They place him in a basket that's been pitched, and they put him in the Nile River. And he floats along, and he is discovered by the very daughter of Pharaoh, who lifts the child and takes the child to be her own and hires the mother of Moses to be the child's nurse, and he is raised in the house of Pharaoh. And he lives in very neat segments, and maybe you picked up on this biblical pattern, 40 years. Anybody picked up on 40 years? 40 days, 40 nights, 40 years. There's a lot of 40s going on in the Bible if you hadn't picked that up. It's a design feature. 40 years. And at the age of 40, he comes upon a scene in which a a Jewish slave is being mistreated, and he intervenes on behalf of that slave, and and a fight ensues, and in it he kills the Egyptian soldier. And in fear, he flees for his life. He flees Egypt. Moses flees Egypt, and he runs for his life. And he goes, and and, and he uh, goes to his old area, and he waits there, and he finds a young girl, and they get married, and he becomes a shepherd in his father-in-law's flocks. And he is a shepherd for 40 years, 40 years. It's very, very neat the way it works, 40 years. He's a shepherd. And one day, as he's shepherding his father-in-law's sheep, he comes upon a burning bush. And the bush begins to speak to him, Exodus chapter 3. 
And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way of the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, what's his name? And then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to remember from generation to generation. So, so God speak. listen to this. This is nutty. God speaks to Moses out of a burning bush. For most of us, if the bush is talking to us, we are experiencing something of a divine nature or we're having a serious mental breakdown. So, so God has already, because I don't know if you remember the story, he comes to the burning bush and he noticed that it's not being consumed. And then he hears a voice that says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. I have seen the plight of my people. I am a God of deliverance. I have seen what's going on and I'm sending you, Moses, to take care of them. At this point, you would think Moses would go, Wow, but he doesn't. Well, but what if they ask me, who sent me? What will I tell them? You tell them that I am. The great I am has sent you. That's what you're saying. Now, this conversation doesn't end here. If you read it, it goes on and on. Well, you do know that I don't speak very well. Well, I'm going to appoint your brother-in-law Aaron to go with you. And he can be your mouthpiece and he can speak. But, but, but how will I, who's a, how the, huh, throw your staff on the ground, Moses. Turns into a snake. He picks it up again. Take it by the tail. <laughs> no. Okay. It's just like you and I. This is our story. I want to deliver you. Yeah, but you know, God, I don't know if it's you or a mental breakdown. But I want you to speak. I want you to go. I want you to feel confident. I want you to have peace. Yeah, but I don't know. I just, oh, look at me. Uh, amen? And we struggle. And he's sent to Pharaoh, and he speaks to Pharaoh, and he says, I want you to release my people. And Pharaoh says, no way. And so the plagues begin. You know, there's ten of those things. The plague of the water turned to blood. And I don't know if you follow along, but uh, each of these are an attack on one of the deities of Egypt. And so the Nile River, which is considered a deity, turned to blood. But the sorcerers are able to turn water to blood as well. And, and then the second plague comes, and it's the plague of the frogs. And this is actually kind of funny. I mean, it's kind of gross too, but I mean, I don't know. Frogs are really not warm creatures. Is that, I mean, that's, they're not, mm, you know, uh, somebody here has a pet frog, and you'll write me an email this week. Erwin <laughs> is so sweet. And so the sorcerers get involved in this whole, this whole frog thing, and they can also make frogs. But Pharaoh's got to be like, uh, it wasn't the making of frogs that was the issue. It was the getting rid of the frogs that was the issue. So, and the sorcerers can't get rid of the frogs. They can only make them. And then the third plague is the plague of Nat. But by the way, at the second plague, Pharaoh says, okay, I'm going to let your people go. And then he changes his mind. The third plague is the plague of the gnats, and the sorcerers are unable to duplicate that plague. 
And then the plague of the flies comes. And, and at this point, the fourth plague, we don't even hear about the sorcerers. They're not even in the story anymore. They've gone somewhere else. They've taken a break. Pharaoh, again, at the fourth plague, promises to let the people go. But then he changes his mind. The fifth plague comes, the plague on livestock, which is not only costly, there's not only a financial situation, but it's also sacred. Much of the livestock is considered sacred and is worshipped. And so once again, one of those spaces in which God is working. The plague of the boils comes next. That's the sixth plague. And we're told now the sorcerers are mentioned again in the sixth plague. We're told in the sixth plague that they're in so much pain that they can't even come and, and represent in front of Moses. The seventh plague, the plague of hail. It's the first time in the flow of the story that we find that the people within the house of Pharaoh are actually believing the story. They are now seeking shelter and asking God to deliver them. They have become God-fearers in the course of these first seven plagues. Then the plague of locusts, then the plague of darkness, and finally the plague of the firstborn. And the children of Israel are released. In fact, we're told that the nation of Israel are released. 600,000 men, not counting women and children. And in fact, we're told that after the plague of the firstborn, that people give gold and jewels and, and gifts to the Israelites to make them leave. Take this and go. And the scripture says something simple like, not only were the children of Israel delivered, but in this way they plundered the riches of Egypt. And they leave. They begin to exit. They are freed from slavery. And as they travel, they... Then Pharaoh changes his mind, and he sends his chariots, and he sends his people after them. And, and now we have this, this crazy scene. We've seen these ten amazing, we've seen Moses come, speak in the name of God. We've seen these, these amazing plagues that have taken place. We've seen nature turn against the Egyptians. It's just been a fantastic story to this point. There's been a burning bush. That was a little thing. Now all of this. You would think that these people would have great faith at this point, wouldn't you? And they come to the Red Sea, and there is now in front of them a body of water, and behind them is Pharaoh's army coming, and now they are in complete panic. Complete panic. And I love their attitude. This is our story. <laughs> Exodus 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and, they, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What an attitude. You sound like teenage children, don't they? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? <laughs> what have you done to us? It gets worse. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone and let us serve the Egyptians? No, you did not. <laughs> You didn't say anything like that. You said, poor me, poor me, poor, poor me, poor, poor me. That's, I think, what you were saying. Oh, ouch, poor me. I think that's what was going on. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, the ever-patient representative of God. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never See, again, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. How important would those words be in your life right now? You don't need to do anything. Just be still. God will take care of you. I, I, I would guess not in exactly the way you hope and wish. 
I would guess that even when there's this massive deliverance from this place called slavery, there are going to be other obstacles that will also require faith and trust. But God is working to deliver because, let me tell you, that's the whole story. The whole narrative rides on this thing. And God does deliver them in a way that they would have never suspected, in a way they would have never imagined, in a way that they couldn't conceive happening. Moses prayed, and the waters parted. Exodus 14, 29. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, and a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. It's a big deal. Depending on your age, you may be having vivid images of Charlton Heston walking through the water. Older people help the younger people. God delivers his people. And if you don't think it's a big deal, if you don't think from a biblical narrative, from a biblical theology standpoint that this is a big deal, I want to just quickly take you on a little survey in the law, Deuteronomy 7.17, you may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. In Joshua, as he talks to them about conquering the land, Joshua 24, then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See how it keeps coming up? This is a big deal. This story of deliverance is a big deal. It keeps coming up again and again in the book of Judges, chapter 6, verse 7. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of your oppressor. I drove them from before you and I gave you their land. This story keeps coming up over and over. Nehemiah, as he sent to rebuild the walls, chapter 9, verse 9. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. It just keeps coming up over and over. The psalmist, when Israel, Psalms 114.1, when Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of a foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel's dominion. Isaiah 43, this is what the Lord said. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and the horses, the army and the reinforcements together. Stephen, Acts chapter 7, in his speech before the Sanhedrin, verse 36. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. The writer of Hebrews, it was your ancestors God brought forth out of the land of Egypt. See, this story of deliverance is not a little thing that happened a long time ago. This is our story. And I don't know what's happening in your journey and in your life, and I don't know where you most need God's deliverance. But listen, somehow in this world, we have given in to a kind of cynicism, even in the life of the church, for we no longer live in this place of an expectation of the power of God to be manifest in our lives. God desires to deliver us. He desires that you and I would come to a place where we trust him. That even when things are difficult and overwhelming, that we, we continue to just say, you know, 
I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know how. I'm going to keep doing my part. I'm going to keep being a part of the purpose. I know God has a part and I have a part. And I'm going to keep doing my best at my part. But I'm going to trust him. He will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on him. I'm going to stop focusing on what is broken. And I'm going to start focusing on this narrative of deliverance. I'm going to stop thinking about the destruction. And I'm going to start thinking about deliverance. How's God going to work it out? I, I don't know. It's going to, I have no idea. But I have a kind of optimism down deep. Yes, the world is broken. The whole creation waits. It's groaning as in the, the, the place of labor, the place of travail, waiting for its deliverance. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we go inwardly, eagerly awaiting our adoption as children. Listen, it's not all okay yet. Amen? Amen. But it's getting there. These pains are not just pain. They're the pains of birth. Something's coming, and it's worth the effort. This is a God of deliverance. And I don't know what's going on in your story. Maybe it has to do with a health issue. Maybe right now you're sitting in this place, and you can't even hear me because you're so scared. Because there's a scan coming, or a test coming, or this thing, or that thing. We get there, don't we? We Well, some of you aren't old enough yet, but you'll get there. (laughs) God's in the business of deliverance. Not every story turns out okay. And yet, I am persuaded to believe that nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not life, not death. Not things present, not things to come. Not powers, not principalities. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors who loves us and gave himself for us. And even when we lose, by some earthly standard, we win. I do not want you to grieve as those who have no hope. God has given us life. That's why the second stand of the story becomes so important. Because as I'm telling you about deliverance, all of us in this room are going, yeah, but some people die. Yes, but there's a second story of deliverance. And in that story, even death is subjected to the will of God. So I don't know where you live this morning. I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's circumstances. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's somebody in your life that you're praying for that are going through something and you don't know how to help. Maybe it's your own inner world, emotions, thoughts. Maybe you live in a place that's, that's anxious and agonizing and overwhelming with sadness. I just want to invite you to do this. Just be still. Just be still. God loves you like that. This is our story. This is our song. God, would you help us as we close these moments together? Would you just allow us to lay some things at your feet? That for a lot of us who are watching by live stream or sitting in this room, we desperately need to lay at your feet some circumstances. They're bigger than us. They're beyond our control. There's things going on in our physical bodies that need healing. I pray your intervention and power and healing over people who desperately in this day need to be touched and healed and transformed. This is our story, a story of deliverance. There are some here this morning listening and gathering in this place who have complicated relationship things, brokenheartedness. You are in the business of binding up the brokenhearted. 
I pray that you would be present in broken relationships and you would be restoring and delivering and empowering in ways that we cannot even ask or imagine. I pray your strength over circumstances that have to do with finances and jobs and and debt and overwhelming anxiety that comes from all of that. Please be present as we do our part. Meet us with your power, with your grace, with your mercy, and with your power to deliver. Maybe this morning it has to do with our emotions and thoughts and our inner world. I pray for those trapped in anxiety and depression. I pray that you would remind them that they could hear your voice. You are the God who delivers. You are the God who delivers. You are the God who delivers. You will keep guard over our hearts and minds. Maybe it's a chronic situation, a habit, an addiction. God, bring your power. You said you would release the captives. You said you would set free those who were trapped in darkness. I pray that it would be so. I pray that we would sense a movement of your spirit in our hearts, in our lives, in our congregation. That you would come against the darkness and you would speak once again your word of light. God, I commit to you, these who pray in this place, you see their hearts and their stories. Those who are praying uh, by by live stream on Facebook. I, I pray and lift them to you and place them in your hands and pray your grace and protection and deliverance over them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said together, Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.